You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. A very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well now, Boris Johnson faces his uh, first major foreign policy test after Iran fired more than a dozen missiles at uh, US-Iraqi air bases in retaliation for that killing of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani last week. We now do know that there are officially no US casualties. uh, That line crossing the Bloomberg terminal just around 12 noon today. But still, it's going to be a huge test for a big US ally. Yeah, a pretty messy start to 2020. It seems to be getting worse by the day. But the other thing we've got to be watching is the European Commission president and Ursula von der Leyen. She is coming to London today. She says the UK won't get a full post-Brexit trade deal in 2020. She is the pessimist of the two, should we say, between her and Boris Johnson. Uh, speaking ahead of that meeting with the Prime Minister, uh, she said that. And they're going to be joined by Michel Barnier, the head of the uh, negotiating team for the EU, uh, and the UK Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay as well. But how are those trade talks and how's the schedule going to plan out? That's what we're watching out for. Yeah, indeed, that meeting later on this afternoon. But first, let's talk about Prime Minister's uh, questions, because, of course, they return to the House of Commons today. Uh, Boris Johnson was criticised for not addressing the growing tensions between the US and Iran in Parliament uh, yesterday, instead sending the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. Look, I imagine the first couple of questions in PMQs are going to be around Iran. It's got to be, hasn't it, really? Um, and, and from uh, Jeremy Corbyn as well, a man with his own history and his own criticisms of, of the situation. Should we have a listen in? Mr. Speaker, following last night's attack on the United States bases in Iraq, can the Prime Minister confirm that he opposes any further retaliation or escalation in violence in a situation where the region is in real risk of going into a full-scale war? 
Well, uh, Mr. Speaker, of course I can confirm that, and I can point out to the Honourable Gentleman that the United Kingdom has been working uh, solidly since the crisis began uh, to bring together, in particular, our, our European allies in uh, their response. And the House will have noted the, the E3. Uh, declaration that was issued by uh, France, Germany and the United Kingdom, in which we drew particular attention to the baleful role played in the region for a very long time uh, by Qasem uh, Soleimani, and that was a collective uh, European view, but a view that doesn't yet appear to be shared uh, by the right honourable gentleman. I've been interested in all his commentary uh, that he hasn't yet raised that matter. Jeremy Corbyn. Speaker, following the government's support for the United States over the assassination of General Soleimani, is the Prime Minister confident that United Kingdom troops and civilians are not at further risk in the region and beyond? Uh, Mr Speaker, I can of course uh, confirm, and that's an important question, that, uh, that the, uh, as far as we can tell, and the, 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 there were no casualties last night sustained by uh, the US and no British personnel were injured in the, uh, in the attacks. And we are doing everything we can, of course, to protect UK interests in the region with uh, HMS Defender and HMS Montrose. All right, that's your first flavour of Prime Minister's questions. The first one of 2020. So let's just focus in on our top story then. Iran retaliating against the US with that missile strike on bases in Iraq after the US killed Iranian General Soleimani. World leaders urging restraint against this, a major test, of course, for Boris Johnson in his early days of this new tenure as Prime Minister. I'm pleased to say joining us now to discuss all of this is our columnist, Therese Raphael. Uh, Therese, it's been five days now since the Iranian general was killed. What's interesting interesting is how little Boris Johnson himself has said. Uh, is there a strategy particularly behind this? Yeah, I think there is a strategy, and that is, you know, to try to maintain the UK's very delicate balance between uh, its European allies and the US. And this has you know, become you know, increasingly important now that Britain is leaving the EU and wants, you know, a trade deal with the U.S. also wants to deal with the EU. Now, the two are not entirely aligned, of course, on Iran. The EU is long favored uh, dialogue. It wants a return to the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, Donald Trump has pulled the U.S. out of that and, you know, has, has upped the ante and increased confrontation. The best Johnson can hope to do is basically, you know, express sympathy with the Trump policy and solidarity with the EU policy or the other way around. Um, but, you know, he, he will hope not to have to come off the fence and choose. And I think that's why we're seeing these very carefully crafted statements, one with France and Germany, one on his own saying we don't lament Soleimani's, de uh, Soleimani's death, uh, but we would like both sides to de-escalate. And so far, Jeremy Corbyn has thrown him a couple of softball questions in which Johnson can just come back and re Confirm that you know UK uh, that the UK position is de-escalation, mm. uh, and you know so I, I think that's where he wants to be. The problem for Johnson is if things were to escalate, if uh, Trump were to go in for a retaliatory response that that puts UK assets and UK lives in danger. Any serious US military operation will involve uh, the UK. There are joint bases, forces, yeah. integrated targets, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, at the moment, I think he's hoping to to kind of hold the, the, the line and, and can manage to do that. No, indeed. And there's been a lot of management on the US side and the Iranian side around uh, escalation. Uh, and of course, we have not yet heard from President Donald Trump himself uh, promising to, to speak to the nation later on Wednesday. 
Wednesday. The UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab just this morning, um, you know, urging Iran not to carry out further, quote, reckless and dangerous attacks. Uh, look, the other side of this, just from the kind of UK political angle, uh, you know, you've explained so neatly the delicate balance that the prime minister has to tread. But surely the Labour Party, the opposition, Mr Corbyn himself has many issues on this, you know, not particularly trusted on defence by voters. It would uh, emerge from the general election. He has been supportive of Iran in the past. Is this something that the new Labour Party leader is really going to have to come out with and, and deal with? Well, the clearest sign of just how little regard there is for the Labour Party leader on defence policies was when Number 10 refused him a security briefing yeah. on the Soleimani uh, assassination. That was actually quite striking because the, uh, you you know, the, the rule is that the leader of the opposition gets briefed. And uh, and Boris Johnson said, no, I don't think it's necessary in this case. Now, obviously, the Labour Party is, uh, is, is in the process of choosing a new leader. And I think Johnson will fill absolutely no obligation with his 80-person majority after the, the last election, after Jeremy Corbyn was so roundly defeated. And with his own, as you rightly point out, his own, um, you know, history of sympathy toward, uh, you know, toward Iran, toward, uh, toward, toward uh, terrorist groups and that sort of thing, that uh, he will feel no obligation to, uh, you know, to to offer the uh, current opposition leader any kind of briefing um, or explanation beyond what he's that, that's giving in Parliament. That you think that that could continue even under a new a new leader? No, so. I'm not sure it will continue under a new leader. Wow, I think okay. while the, while the process is in in while Jeremy Corbyn is still in place, mm -hmm. I think Boris Johnson is going to hold his current line. I think under a new leader, particularly if we have someone like Keir Starmer, I think we we now would revert to a more normal parliamentary balance where Understood. the opposition will be holding the government to account. And going back to that alignment between the U.S. and the EU. Is this a new normal then, towing that line? Because, of course, there's been so much talk of, of uh, retreading these boundaries and shifting towards the US, especially with that trade deal in sight. Um, is this a tightrope that Johnson's going to have to walk for a while? It's going to be a difficult one. We heard Ursula von der Leyen, the, the European Commission president, just speaking at London School of Economics, repeatedly emphasizing the importance of foreign policy cooperation and talking about a security arrangement, how important it is that, the, uh, that Britain and the European Union with their shared experiences and values come to agreement on security issues as well. So I think this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a, an a long-term delicate sort of push me, pull you, uh, where Trump is kind of you know, it, it has the UK in a bear hug and encouraging Boris Johnson to continue the longstanding special relationship and support. And the European Union is saying, look, you know, common uh, ground here is is also important. And and uh, and and obviously the trade issue uh, looms large in both discussions. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Caroline, what you got? Yeah, indeed. Deprived schools. Ofsted reporting into deprived schools uh, and that kind of line in a number of newspapers. The Financial Times talks about poor governance, high staff turnover and a resistance to change has left thousands of pupils in poor education in, quote, stuck schools for more than a decade in England. The Mirror picks up on uh, the content in the Ofsted report from one senior school staff member uh, saying that their school was a, quote, dumping ground. So Ofsted uh, has said that 415 schools in England are stuck in a cycle of low performance. Uh, meaning that they haven't been rated good or outstanding by the watchdog uh, since September 2006. This is going to be a major issue, isn't it? It's all of the UK domestic political uh, issues, including education, healthcare, mm. and so many others that I think voters are going to be really worried yeah, about. Yeah, this is the reality biting for yeah. Boris Johnson. And of course, the Conservatives have, have pledged uh, £14 billion for schools. So we'll see where that money goes, if it turns up, and what sort of change they can make. But they were certainly very bullish, weren't they, during the election campaign? Uh, and in the run-up to it. I've got this story from The Telegraph. The EU warning Boris Johnson not to water down protections for EU citizens living in the UK after Brexit. Uh, The paper's got hold of this letter that was sent before Christmas by Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, to the Brexit secretary, Stephen Barclay, raising what it calls issues of concerns. And this comes after we had that big majority and the government rewrote parts of the withdrawal agreement following the, uh, the election. And it gave, among the changes, ministers the power to abolish the independent watchdog that was set up to deal with EU citizens' complaints. Um, What's also of note, the Telegraph reporting that the Home Office and DexEU, the Department for Exiting the EU, also are recommending against the need for these powers to abolish that body. So the uh, the government taking a little bit of extra power here and various other people saying perhaps not a great idea. Yeah, indeed. Just lastly, you know, we were talking about HS2 in a recent uh, Bloomberg Westminster programme, of course, uh, because, you know, the the panel is now reporting about whether it's going to recommend HS2, or at least the report has gone to the government and the government at some point will perhaps publish it. Well, George Osborne, um, obviously a a former uh, Conservative minister, saying that the HS2 rail project must go ahead despite the spiralling costs. He's also talking even about HS3 in some newspapers uh, today about how high-speed rail, the UK must do better and compared to European rivals, we just don't have enough of it. That will certainly ruffle a few feathers. A very controversial thing. But of course, George Osborne, uh, the brainchild or, or the guy behind the Northern Powerhouse yes. uh, as, as an idea. So you would expect him to take this sort of move. There are some uh, within the North also calling for this and many other rail networks up there as well. Uh, but let's move on to the Labour hustings that we had last night for the leadership. This was behind closed doors. It was the first one. Uh, so all we've got to go by really are the press reports of the the, the leaks essentially and the sourcing that came out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's dig into that because I'm pleased to say joining us now is uh, Tom O'Grady who is a lecturer in quantitative political science at UCL. Uh, Tom in the past you've looked at the sort of the social makeup of the Labour Party uh, and, and how it affects policy making and I suppose policy is one big issue for Labour now as it tries to find its path forward. Uh, in your capacity and given your expertise what advice would you give to the current uh, candidates to win over the party? Well, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, I think the party, what we don't know about the party at the moment is how much the leadership has changed since the last election. Certainly in the last leadership election, uh, Corbyn's supporters were very strong in the party. The question, the open question, I think, for the contest now is who has joined, what is the electorate going to look like, and how much do they want those candidates to stick very closely to the programme that Jeremy Corbyn set out, or how much are they willing to listen to new ideas? 
I suspect the candidate that wins the uh, contest is going to be the candidate that can maintain somewhat the status quo of Corbyn's economic policies, but win over enough members who want stronger leadership and uh, a sort of stronger pitch to northern voters and voters who abandoned the party. Okay, Uh, I'm interested to hear more about this. What uh, do you make of the kind of story that we're uh, talking about a lot today, obviously, the the ratcheting tensions in the Middle East? Um, We've been hearing from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn uh, at Prime Minister's Questions. The issue of uh, defence and security was one on which Jeremy Corbyn really fell down with the British public, I feel. It kind of didn't pass the smell test on a basic level. Do you think that that is something that the next leader is going to have to address? I mean, this is the first major foreign policy test for this new administration and therefore for the opposition too. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be a tough uh, situation for leaders of both parties. Uh, Obviously, Britain doesn't have a great record of wars in the Middle East, conflict in the Middle East. It's probably the last thing Boris Johnson wants to start his premiership was. But to go back to the Labour contest, I think it's going to be uh, somewhat easy, I think, for the candidates to distance themselves from Corbyn in in the sense that they don't have the history Jeremy Corbyn had with the IRA and with those sort of associations that did come up on the doorstep. So that distancing, I think, may be easier for the candidates than you might think in the sense that they don't necessarily have to adopt a really bellicose stance against Iran, I think, to put distance between themselves and Corbyn. Certainly, I think you're seeing the candidates being cautious. We've seen several candidates on Twitter recently sort of trying to thread the needle between sounding tough but also not wanting to immediately commit Britain to any kind of military action. What I suspect is, with the public, uh, military action is always popular in theory, but in practice it tends to become much less popular once boots are on the ground. So I suspect the candidates are going to try and put distance between themselves and military action, but try to sound a bit more tough and a bit more patriotic, I think, than Jeremy Corbyn was able to. So you mentioned the public, and of course, once whoever the leader is has got past the the Labour Party, the next big test is going to be with the public in some form or another. How do they shore up all the support they lost? Who do they target in particular? because you've got all of these metropolitan voters that are one possible base for the Labour Party. Then you've got the North and the Midlands that they so epically lost at the last election. And then Scotland as well, which has been languishing since around 2015. Where do they target um, their, their, their efforts, I suppose, to win back what they once had? Well, as an academic, I think the, the first answer I'll give to that is it's complicated. <laughs> and there are no social democratic parties across Europe that have really succeeded in threading that needle easily. So I don't want to suggest that there is a single decision or a single path Labour can take that will automatically win back support for the very reason that any move that they make, let's say, towards supporting leave, towards supporting cuts in immigration, are going to be unpopular with some of those young metropolitan supporters in seats like London. Now, having said that, the seats that Labour needs to win back at the next election are probably more overwhelmingly in the north of England and the Midlands. London actually Labour did quite well in at the election. Um, And so I think they are going to have to do a little bit more of a sort of, if you like, patriotic Labour, blue Labour, these are the words that have been used. And you've already seen even work along Bailey um, this week, who is generally seen as the sort of Corbyn continuity candidate, trying to pitch herself as a patriotic uh, Labour supporter. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so does that mean we, we get this surge to the right socially among the Labour Party? That's exactly right. I think I think I wouldn't use the word surge necessarily. I think we will certainly see a shift to the right. right. I think we will not see them talking as much uh, about immigration in positive terms. Um, 
I suspect that Labour is not going to move much to the left in terms of economics. And actually, I think that's probably where, to use an academic term, the median voter in Britain probably is right now. There is, I think, a space for a left-wing economically, but somewhat to the right authoritarian, if you like, uh, party. That's also where Boris Johnson, of course, is trying to pitch himself with the, yeah. the end of the end of austerity, um, spending rises likely to come. So it's going to be a tough sort of terrain for Labour to contest because both parties, I think, are going to be looking for that. Okay, who is going to struggle the most to get onto the ballot out of the six candidates that we have? Emily Thornbury, Clive Lewis, Keir Starmer, uh, Rebecca Long, Bailey, and Jess Phillips. Have I got? Have I got? Does that add up to six? I, I hope that so. is six. Yes. So I, I think Emily Thornbury and Clive Lewis are going to have the toughest path. I think they actually they sort of come from different wings of the party in some sense. Clive Lewis from the left of the party is going to face a tough fight to to sort of stand out against Rebecca Long Bailey, who is generally seen as the Corbyn continuity. It, so is it Long Bailey's to lose? I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it's going to be a contest largely between Rebecca Long Bailey and Keir Starmer for the leadership. I think Keir Starmer has earned the trust of a lot of the membership because of his Brexit stance. He's widely seen as the person that pushed the party towards a second referendum, which is very popular with the Labour membership. So I think it's going to be a tight contest between the two of them. And of course, the latest poll that we had last week from YouGov of Labour members actually put Keir Starmer in the lead over Rebecca Long-Bailey by a fairly wide margin. So we'll have to keep watch on, on how that margin changes. Do you think he'll be tarred, though, by his Remainer status once he ends up, if he does end up as the leader once he goes to the country? I mean, I think what he'll be hoping is that Brexit as a political issue falls off the agenda mm. if and when he becomes leader. And I'm sure Rebecca Longbelly will be hoping the same thing. Sure they would, yeah. <laughs> of course, very unlikely to happen. Whatever happens, we're going to be in protracted talks with the EU, you know, for, for quite a while. So I yeah. think I think it's going to be tough for him to win back um, supporters in the north. But he does have the advantage of, I think, being a very credible leader, having that sort of aura, if you like, of, of leadership that I think Jeremy Corbyn sometimes lacked. Uh, OK, and it wasn't six, by the way any canny listeners I, I missed out Lisa Nandy you guys didn't correct me come on um, wake up now, the last question that I want to put to you though I want to go back to the government it's going to be a long time before Labour actually goes back to a vote and you know we decide whether the next leader is popular or not how far will charm get Mr Johnson in the EU talks he's meeting Ursula uh, von der Leyen this afternoon well I think reality is about to strike for Boris Johnson I think the idea that talks are going to be over and done with within a year is a little bit fanciful. I think the most he can hope for is a fairly minimal deal by the end of 2020. And I, you know, I suspect that negotiations are going to be continuing for a long time, whether it's formally, whether it's informally um, past 2020. So he's going to need his best negotiating skills, I think, not just this year, but, but going forward after but that. But does actually extending the deadline that Mr. Johnson has promised again and again not to do, how much does that actually hurt him, do you think? I suspect that the deadline will not be extended. I think the hmm. open question, the open question for this year is how much is Boris Johnson willing to make concessions quietly to the EU in order to hit that? I wouldn't be surprised to see Boris Johnson on the quiet making a few concessions to the EU to hit that target. And in fact, some of those concessions will probably be quite popular with voters. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio. 